a few weeks ago, Chris did a, a little mini-series on um, John 17, and he called that the Lord's Prayer. And most of you, uh, as he said in that message, most of you kind of, have, when you hear the, the term the Lord's Prayer, you think about Matthew chapter 6 and the uh, prayer in which Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? And, um, and actually, uh, many scholars, theologians, many people, Christians, I think even Chris alluded to it, that that is more to be considered the disciples' prayer because it's what Jesus taught us to pray. And so uh, I decided to do two messages on the disciples' prayer. And so I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to, over the next two weeks, look at verses 9 through 15. 9 through 15. And um, the first thing, of course, when you ever address the topic of prayer is how many people feel that their prayer life is inadequate. Anybody feel that way? Have you ever heard somebody say, well, my prayer life is not what it should be? How many of you would admit to that? Just a rhetorical question. You don't have to raise your hand. But I think at times we all probably feel that way. In a large sense, I believe it's because we have a distorted idea in our minds of what a good prayer life is. Let's be honest. We've all heard sermons preached, probably even from this pulpit, that contain stories and quotations about prayer that not only make us feel ashamed of our own prayer life, but possibly even cause us to be disillusioned and discouraged about trying to develop a pattern of prayer for our own daily lives because we hear these stories and we go, well, I can't measure up to that. I mean, you've heard them, haven't you? At least I have. Like the one by that great reformer, Martin Luther. Here's the quote. I have so much to do today that I must spend the first three hours of it in prayer. Well, that's an awe-inspiring declaration, isn't it? But at the same time, hearing statements like that preached sermon after sermon not only inspires awe, but it creates an incredible guilt complex sometimes. As much as I long to have a spiritual life that begins the day with three hours of prayer, you think, and ends the day with three hours of prayer, do the math, I realize we think, I can't do that. And you realize that it's just nearly physically impossible, unless that's all I do. Sadly, in the shadow of such a realization, many often adopt the unbiblical attitude, now unbiblical attitude, that says, why do I bother? It's hopeless. If that's what prayer should be, and I can't pray like Luther, then why pray at all? Well, the simple truth of the matter is one that I believe can set us all free is that God never expected necessarily all of us to be on our knees for three hours in the morning and three hours in the evening every single day. While I believe that devotion to prayer is taught throughout the Bible and that it's absolutely necessary for all of us to spend significant time with the Lord, I also find that there is no place in the Gospels or the rest of the New Testament for that matter where Jesus teaches his disciples that an acceptable prayer life is characterized by how many hours we spend on our knees or by how many words 
or even what words we use when we pray. As a matter of fact, it may be more appropriate for us to say to Martin Luther these words, what? You only pray three hours? Come on, Marty, you're slacking. Because actually the Bible tells us that we should pray unceasingly in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. But that still doesn't mean that we need to be on our knees physically unceasingly, does it? Jesus is not as concerned with the quantity of our words as much as he is with the sincerity of our hearts. He's not interested so much in the time, but in the intensity. If we learn anything from Jesus about developing a good prayer life, we find that even for the master himself, prayer, watch this, prayer is not to be masked in complexity, but to be clothed in simplicity. And I could add in sincerity onto that. Prayer is not to be masked in complexity, but clothed in simplicity. Jesus' practice of prayer must have been incredibly different than what the disciples were used to, so much so that when they observed Jesus in prayer, they wanted to know how to do it like he did it. In fact, in Luke chapter 11 and verse 1, we read this, these words, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Now, when we want the best advice that we can get, we usually go to an expert in that field that we're researching, correct? We try to. If, if we want to develop a good financial portfolio, for example, we'd go to a seasoned financial planner or a stockbroker and we'd ask, teach us to invest, right? If a master technique is what we're after, from a gifted musician, whatever instrument you decide you want to play, we'd ask, teach us to play. If you're like some people I know and you want to improve your handicap in golf, you'd get yourself in the presence of a professional golfer or one that's very, very accomplished and inquire, teach me to putt, right? But if it's an effective prayer life you want to develop, you ultimately want to go to the best there is, don't you? And that's not Martin Luther, although he might be well up there. But it's not Billy Graham, even though I'm sure he had a well-developed and disciplined prayer life. And it's not your Christian bookstore online, even though they have countless, countless books on the subject. You go to the source, Jesus Christ. And you humbly ask, Lord, teach us to pray. Would you like to know how Jesus would teach us to pray? Well then, if you're not there yet, let your fingers take a stroll through the pages of God's truth and settle into Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. And let's read, well you can follow along as I read, verses 9 through 15, very familiar passage of Scripture. Pray then, Jesus said, in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now, what we commonly refer to, as I said before, the, as the Lord's Prayer, it's not really his prayer at all. There's no way that Jesus would have asked forgiveness for his sins, right? Because he had no sin. This is really a disciple's prayer, our prayer, a prayer that Jesus, a prayer pattern that Jesus gave us for prayer. It's a pattern for kingdom citizens to go by in structuring the way that they pray. It's an outline to follow. It's not necessarily the prayer itself, okay? Let me show you what I mean. How many of you sow? Guys and girls. <laughs> Do any of you recognize the image that's behind me? What is it? It's a pattern. Now, you'd look pretty foolish if you wore this to a restaurant, wouldn't you? Like that person. See, it was never designed to be the end product, but the model to go by. In the same way, I'm convinced that Jesus never intended for us to stop with the pattern, but to clothe it with our own words, in our own style. Although there's nothing wrong with learning and repeating this prayer with sincerity and reverence, it's not so much a prayer to recite as it is a pattern to respect. It's the model of true prayer. According to Jesus, if you've ever wondered if you can have an effective prayer life, you can simply by learning the elements of Jesus' pattern of prayer. I agree with John MacArthur who wrote, in fewer than 70 words, we find a masterpiece of the infinite mind of God who alone could compress every conceivable element of true prayer into such a brief and simple form a form that even a young child can understand, but the most mature believer cannot fully comprehend. Unquote. So here it is, sincere prayer follows a simple pattern. Now the last thing I want you guys to be sitting here saying is, I know this. This is old news, Russ. That's the wrong attitude to approach the scriptures with, isn't it? Is nothing we can learn from this? I'm sure there is. And let the Holy Spirit teach us. Because that simple pattern has one sincere focus here. Our Father. Jesus teaches us, first of all, that our priority here is to admire and to acknowledge, to adore the nature of our Father. Verses 9 and 10. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Make it your habit to pray this way, Jesus said. 
it's not just a one-shot deal. Jesus teaches us that whenever we pray, we should keep this teaching in our minds. That means that every prayer that we ever utter has one primary focus, doesn't it? One pointed destination, one prominent captive audience, our Father who art in heaven. That's it. That's the focus. So the first way we admire and acknowledge the nature of our Father is by respecting the uniqueness of his paternity or his fatherhood. Our Father. In Jesus' pattern, prayer is addressed to God as Father. Have you ever considered the awesome privilege it is to be able to call God our Father? Have you absolutely stopped and considered and meditated on the privilege that that is. Because the Jews were arrested by Jesus' reference to God as his father. In the Old Testament, there are a dozen or so references where the word father is used in connection with God. So it's not unique to the New Testament. It was there in the Old Testament, but it is never used in the same way that Jesus used in a direct and familiar address. In prayer. Jesus shattered their idea of prayer. Kenneth Bailey writes, quote, the title God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was set aside for the simple phrase, our Father. The new phrase placed all believers on the same level, regardless of their racial ancestry or their community history, unquote. That's an interesting point. When we say our Father, we're all on the same level, aren't we? And we're in unity, aren't we? We could just sit here and preach on those two words for a long time and mine some deep, deep spiritual jewels from that. We ought to be in awe that we can dare to call God our Father. That's a privilege reserved only for those who have become his children by receiving Christ as their Lord and Savior because Jesus said God was his Father. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, but as many as received him, meaning Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name. To those who receive him, they get the right to say in sincerity, our Father. You often hear about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, right? As if the world was a universal family. In a sense, it is. God created all men as their creator. He is kind of a father to the whole world. However, the scripture is quite clear that if a person is not in Christ, then he or she is characteristically categorized as of his father, the devil, Jesus said. Now, that's harsh. But Jesus said it in John chapter 8 in verses 36 through 44. If you want to look at that, you can listen to me as I read it. But John chapter 8, verse 36, what does Jesus say? Jesus said, if the Son makes you free, 
you'll be free indeed. Okay? I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. And who is that? They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you're Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father and it's God. And Jesus said, if God were your father, you'd love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, and I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You see, what do you think that made them feel like when Jesus said that to them? The Pharisees. Now, I'm not telling you to go out and tell your unbelieving neighbor down the street that your father is the devil. Probably not going to get you a great audience to share the gospel. But don't be fooled to think this, this humanistic thought about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man that everybody out in the world, God is their father. It's not necessarily true, not spiritually speaking anyway. God is only our father if we are intimately related to his son, Jesus Christ, through faith. Romans 8, verse 14, as a matter of fact. Verse 14, Romans 8, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption of sons by which we cry out, what is it? Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You see that? 1 John chapter 2, verse 23 says, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. And 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. You see the distinction there? And what a privilege it is to be able to call God our Father. Note the communal aspect of the address here in Matthew 6, when Jesus teaches us to pray. The communal aspect of the address, God is our Father. The personal finds its deepest meaning in the communal. God is my Father because he is our Father. In fact, this truth was so apparent to the early church that they actually forbade non-Christians from reciting this prayer. 
It is an extreme privilege to have intimacy and access to God as our Father. There's an old Roman story which tells how a Roman emperor was enjoying uh, a triumph. He had the privilege which Rome gave to her great victors of marching his troops through the streets of Rome with all his captured trophies and his prisoners in his train. And so the emperor was on the march with his troops and the streets were lined with cheering people as he entered into the city and soldiers in the Roman legion lined the street's edges to keep people in their places. And at one point on the triumphal route, there was a little platform where the empress and her family were sitting to watch the emperor go by in all the pride of his triumph. And on the platform with his mother, there was the emperor's youngest son, a little boy. And as the emperor came near, the little boy jumped off the platform, burrowed through the crowd, and tried to dodge between the legs of the legionary and to run out onto the road to meet his father's chariot. A soldier stooped down and stopped him. He swung him up in his arms. He says, you can't do that, boy. He said, don't you know who that is in that chariot? That's the emperor. You can't run out to his chariot. And the little lad looked at the soldier and he laughed and he said, he may be your emperor, but he's my father. And that is exactly the way the Christian feels toward God, isn't it? The might and the majesty and the power are the might and the majesty and the power of the one whom Jesus taught us to call our father. Now, on the other hand, the term father is a title of respect and honor, which I believe many Christians have lost. So we need to remember that not only do we have familiar and free access to God, but we need to remember the transcendence of God. Now, what do I mean by that? That he is totally above and beyond our understanding and totally unreachable in terms of we will never attain to that status. He is our Father, where? Where does it say in Matthew 6? In the heavens. New Age philosophy and a host of non-Christian religions lower this perspective, emphasizing his imminence, which means his nearness, God's nearness to us. And there is that. He is near us. He's in us. He's all around us. But they emphasize it to the point of believing that we can actually become him. We cannot. We must remember that although he is all around us and even in us, he is totally and completely apart from us in terms of his deity and his sovereignty and his holiness and his power and his wisdom and every single attribute that you can name about him. He alone is God. And though we were created in his image, we will never, ever be God. You get that, right? Okay, remember you said that. <laughs> Romans chapter 11, verse 33. I love this passage of scripture. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who was first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so we need to keep that passage in mind while we are praying according to this passage in Matthew chapter 6 when we say, our Father, because we admire and we acknowledge and we adore the nature of our God by respecting his uniqueness and the uniqueness of his paternity, and secondly, by regarding the prominence of his position. Our Father who art in heaven. Sometimes I fear we have sacrificed the awe of God for familiarity with God. Because we look at God sometimes, I think, as our cosmic chum. We've kind of lost the fear of God. I mentioned that last week. The fear of God in our prayer. Although we have free access, we can't blow into his presence and speak to him like we would our buddies in the locker room, can we? I mean, we could. It's not very reverent, however. He's not our bud. Jesus didn't teach us to pray, hey, bud, dude. And yet I've heard people do that. He's not the big guy upstairs. He's not our answer man. He's the almighty father, the ancient of days, sovereign of the entire universe our creator, our redeemer, and our friend. Please remember this. Familiarity and friendship should never undermine reverence and respect. Yes, we can come boldly to the throne room of grace to receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need, but we would be wise to remember that we are coming to a throne not a park bench, okay? And upon that throne sits a king. Psalm 103, Psalm 103 in verse 19 begins like this. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. That's the way we approach God in reverence and respect. But also there's a counterbalance. As children of God, we can approach him, as verse 13 says, the same psalm. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who what? Who fear him. And so thirdly, in prayer, we admire and acknowledge God's nature by revering the preeminence of his person. Okay? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
The word hallowed means to regard something as completely separate from common use. In Scripture, the name of God refers to much more than what we call him. It refers to his entire character, all of his being, his entire person. God's name represents him as the preeminent one. So to pray that God's name be hallowed is not to pray that God may become holy, okay? We're not asking that God's name become holy, but we're praying that we would treat him according to his name as holy and that his name would not be dragged through the mud by our own actions or our thoughts or our conduct or our speech or our practices. In other words, what we're saying is, may your name be hallowed in my life. Everything I do, everything I say, everything I think. And it's also a request that he would demonstrate his holiness throughout the earth. That the world would recognize God as its deepest need in life. And that he would be held in the highest possible regard. As Dallas Willard suggests, quote, when we hear this first request, we want to remember that it is the prayer of an adoring child somewhat jealous for its parent, unquote. You get that? We want the world to know who God is and adore him as we do. We, we're jealous for him. We're in essence praying, oh God, we beseech you to make your own name holy throughout the earth. Demonstrate it, Lord. Do it through me. Do it through your church. Do it through your acts of righteousness and your saving grace personally and throughout the entire earth. That's really what we're praying and we're asking for when we say, hallowed be your name. And the psalmist summarizes that thought very well in Psalm 34 and verse 3. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Psalm 34, 3. And I love what John Piper says about the word magnify. He says the word magnify can be used in two different senses. It can mean make something appear greater than it is, as with a microscope or magnifying glass, right? You magnify something that's small. Or it can mean make something that may seem small or insignificant appear to be as great as it really is. This is what our great telescopes help us begin to do with the magnificent universe which once upon a time spilled over from the brim of God's glory. So there are two kinds of magnifying, right? There's the microscopic magnifying and the telescopic magnifying. The one makes a small thing look bigger than it is. The other makes a big thing begin to look as big as it really is. So in Psalm 69, in verse 30, when David says, I will magnify God with thanksgiving, he does not mean I will make a small God look bigger than he is. He means I will make a big God begin to look as big as he really is to the people around me. We're not called to be a microscope. We're called to be telescopes. 
Christians are not called to be con men who magnify their product out of, out of all proportion to reality when they know the competitor's product, product is, is far superior. No, there is nothing and nobody superior to our Father who art in heaven, right? Nothing. And so the calling of those who love God is to make his greatness begin to look as great and as big and as magnificent as it really is. Is that what your life is doing in mine? Are we bringing God down, making him look small? In one sense, at least that's what it means for us to pray, hallowed be thy name. That's just one sense. That our lives might act as telescopes so that the world would see the greatness of God as he really is. Is that your prayer? Is that my prayer? That our life would, would display the excellence of God by showing his greatness. That's, that's the definition of God's glory anyway, right? I've told you that before. God's displayed excellence. And because of the holiness of his name, because the holiness of his name can easily be defiled by the disobedience of his people, can it? And rather than magnifying it, we can display it as extremely small and diminished and insignificant. We can do that by our words and by our actions that we communicate to others because when it's not the way that it should be and it's not magnifying God, what's it really saying? It's, we're saying that we really, what we really believe about God's greatness and it's not so great. But I remember as a boy going into a church on one occasion with my dad. It was a weekday and no one was there except the priest. I think I was 12 or 13 years old at the time. And uh, we were a strong Catholic family. But we were in the front of the sanctuary facing the altar. If any of you have been in a Catholic church, you know what that looks like. You see the hands waving. So we're in front of the sanctuary facing the altar and as he spoke, the priest spoke with my dad. The priest did something that actually shocked me and, and I wasn't a believer at the time. I mean, I was reverend of God but I didn't know Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior and I was a 13-year-old so I was like, didn't even want to be in church. But this priest, I knew enough that this priest did something that shocked me. He swore. And he just didn't use a dirty word. He used the Lord's name in vain. I couldn't believe my ears. A priest in a church in front of the altar. But you know what? It doesn't matter whether it's in a church or on the street or when you bang your hand fixing your car or whether you're a minister or a mechanic. As followers of Christ, we are all priests and we are all called to honor his name. When I hear God's name abused, and I used to do it all the time before I received the gift of God's merciful salvation, I cringe now when people do that. Do you? Malachi chapter 1. Verse 6 says this, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. 
Now, it's not just the words that bother me. It's the complete and total disregard for God himself that should bother us. And you and I can do that in our prayers, can't we? We don't have to swear. All we have to do is come to him in disrespect. That's another way of taking the Lord's name in vain, meaning making it empty. We come to him in disrespect, thinking we can pull his strings and he will bend to our every whim. Isn't that what we do when we pray our self-centered prayers? Prayers like, give me, help me, heal me, touch me, make me happy. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but I think it's very significant that the words I, me, and mine never occur in this prayer that Jesus taught us. That's because the primary focus is on the Father and his perfect will. Please understand, it's not wrong to pray for yourself. It's not wrong for us to pray for ourselves. We need to make sure, however, it's in the context of God's desires for us and his profound purposes for us, amen? Consequently, in prayer, we also admire and acknowledge the nature of our Father by recognizing the precedence of his program. Our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. The kingdom of God is his sovereign rule, okay? That's just a basic definition of the kingdom of God. It's his sovereign rule. And to pray thy kingdom come is to pray that God's program for all of human history be consummated. That's what we're asking for. And what is that program? Well, it's defined in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Amen. Looking for that day? That's what we pray for when we pray, thy kingdom come. Right now, God's rule is in the hearts of men and women who are rightly related to him through Jesus, faith in Jesus. Theologians call that the mediatorial kingdom, okay? If you want a fancy phrase for that. It's called the mediatorial kingdom. His kingdom rule is operational in and through the lives of Christians here on this earth. What we long for when we pray for his kingdom to come is that his universal kingdom of rule will come to the earth. In other words, we're really praying for the return of Christ, aren't we? But it also means something even more down to earth and practical than that. It means that we're praying that right now on earth, we will be willing to let go of all of our own little kingdoms which matter so much to us and that his kingdom would be coming to us, because we have our own little kingdoms, don't we? And unless we're willing to let God sit on the throne of our own lives and rule over us in this life, then our prayer for his kingdom to come has absolutely no integrity or depth. It's simply lip service. How many of you really want Jesus to come back right now? 
Like, yeah, some people are like, yes, especially after last week's sermon and the week before, right? Yeah, we want to be prepared. Some of us really don't, though. Do you? You know why? Because sometimes we're far too caught up in our own earthly kingdoms. We're building a house or we're building a business and we want to see it succeed. Or maybe we're building a relationship and we want to get married. Or we really don't want Jesus to come yet. You really want him to wait till after the honeymoon, right? That's the way it goes when you're in that place. Uh, no matter what it is, and we all have our little kingdoms, if anything takes precedence over what God's kingdom calls for, then we cannot honestly pray thy kingdom come. Right? Because we got another kingdom in mind. The Jesus pattern for prayer begins with the priority of admiring and acknowledging the nature of the Father. It means respecting his paternity, regarding his position, revering his preeminence, recognizing his program, and finally, last point, it means being resolved to the accomplishment of his purposes being resolved to the accomplishment of his purposes. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that the primary object of the Christian's prayer must be, get this, primary object of the Christian's prayer must be God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. You can write that down. Take that one to the bank because he nailed it because it says it right here in this prayer. It's God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. Too often, however, we get a little blurred in that, and it becomes our name and our kingdom and our will that we're praying for. And we want that to be the focus. You know what we have? We have an Aladdin complex. We treat God like a genie and we've relegated him to the lamp and we want to rub the lamp and then we get our wish granted. If that's what true prayer is about, not one of us would be saved right now because Jesus would have never gone to the cross. You understand that? Because Jesus... Jesus' prayer was thy will be done, not mine. Instead of the Aladdin complex, we ought to adopt the princess bride approach. You know the story, right? I know I've told you before, but let me remind you again, as one author explains it very clearly, because I think this will stick in your minds if you haven't heard this before. There is one line that lies at the heart of the story of the movie The Princess Bride and at the heart of your story as well. It's spoken when the story begins and when it ends. It's kind of a prayer. In fact, it's the greatest prayer Jesus himself ever prayed. If we were ever able to pray it truly, and continually, it is the only prayer that you and I would ever need. Get that? The only prayer we would ever need. Gary Moon tells it like this. The author says, as the movie opens, we see the heroine going out about her chores on a farm, and her name is 
Buttercup. Uh, you can still like the movie even though the name is Buttercup. It's soon we meet a young man who works on the farm and answers to the name Farm Boy. And whenever Buttercup asks Farm Boy to do something for her, he always replies, as you wish. That's all he ever says to her. And as they grow into their hormones, Buttercup seems to be developing a crush on Farm Boy. And one day he's about to leave the room. She asks him to fetch her a pitcher, which is within easy reach for her. And the farm boy walks over, then stares into her eyes, lifts up the pitcher and whispers, as you wish. And in that moment, returning his gaze, Buttercup realizes that every time he has said, as you wish, he was really saying, I love you. For many centuries, those wisest among us about the spiritual life, Gary says, have insisted that this one line is the door that opens the heart to the presence of God. There is no greater expression of love than a freely submitted will. At the heart of communion with God is the whisper, as you wish. Now, there are moments when I remember to pray that prayer, he says. There are other times when it doesn't even enter my mind to say, as you wish. I'm not necessarily being defiant, just oblivious. There are times when I'm not sure what God wishes me to do. And I just have to muddle through on my own. And there are times when I simply don't want to pray it, when I choose not to pray it. But I don't know about you, but I'm thankful beyond words that when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed, he followed the as-you-wish pattern of being resolved to his Father's will. Amen? Mark chapter 14, verse 36, puts it like this in the New King James Version. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will Let's translate that. Nevertheless, as you wish. You see, true prayer is not focused on getting God to do my will. It's asking him to do his will in my life, my family, and in my work, and in my relationships, and in my ministry, which is actually his ministry. In every area of our lives, just like it's done in heaven. That's what we're asking. Without argument, without complaint, without hesitation, as you wish. That's the attitude Jesus had. So when we ask Jesus and the disciples ask Jesus to pray, teach them to pray, that's a biggie. He's saying, look, as your rabbi, I'm going to teach you to pray. Do it like me. And my food, Jesus said to them, is to obey the will of the one who sent me and to finish the work he sent me to do. As you wish. I don't do anything on my own initiative, Jesus said, but only what I see the Father doing. C.S. Lewis wrote that the day is coming when every soul will adopt one of two postures before God, either joyful surrender or defiant separation. One day, every being will say, 
either thy will be done or my will be done. And the reality is that, at least to some small degree, our hearts are always assuming one or the other of those postures. The author says, from one moment to the next, we make choices. What will I do next? How will I treat this person? What will I do with this money? Where will I allow this temptation to lead me? And the heart that learns to say, as you wish, from one moment to the next, opens itself to the power of the universe. You understand that? It does not matter whether our task is great or whether it's small or whether we're famous or whether we are obscure. Anne Lamott has a wonderful thought. She said, quote, the Gulf Stream can pass through a straw if the straw aligns itself with the Gulf Stream, unquote. You and I have a choice. We align ourselves with the stream of what God desires or we attempt to go our own way. What will be the priority in your prayer? That's what I'll leave you with. Will it be your personal title? Your tiny little empire? Your selfish wants? Or will it be God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will? Because Jesus' simple pattern of prayer begins with a sincere priority to admire and acknowledge and adore the nature of our Father. So let's practice that this week. And we'll come back and pick up where we left off next time. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your name is great. It is powerful and we adore you. We pray that your kingdom would come in our lives, in our very existence. Be Lord over our lips, over our bodies, over our brains, over our emotions, over our finances, over our families, over our anything, Lord God, that we engage in. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Help us, Lord God, to approach each day, to live our lives throughout each day, and to lay our heads on the pillow each evening with a phrase on our lips, as you wish. May that be our mantra for the rest of our lives. Because we're going to be saying it in heaven for eternity. Help us to get the practice now. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.